Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Hey, this is uh, Paul Axton. I'm here with John today, and we're coming at uh, an understanding, maybe from two directions, but hopefully not, it's not confusing. But discussing uh, critical realism, especially as that given by Ben Meyer, and Myers then kind of Lonerganian understanding. And so we kind of we want to lay that out and say, okay, this is what's happening. And uh, to a degree then locate someone like uh, N.T. Wright in that as much as we're able. But then also then to look at how an apocalyptic understanding, you know, the focus on who God is and the revelation that's given to us in Christ might fit into or perhaps not fit into this understanding. So, John, can you lay out a bit then what you've been doing with critical realism? My interest is sort of been delving into New Testament studies, but not as one who ever was training to be a biblical scholar, you know, uh, was training to be a systematic theologian. Now I've ended up a priest, so I'm a bit of a practitioner but still a student and would still probably work from a historical theology systematics type of thinking about questions of who God is. But uh, biblical studies is interesting, and there have been lots of developments in the last hundred years because of the developments in philosophy and what's going on in hermeneutics. And so what Ben Meyer has tried to do, and I think successfully so, that is to take Lonergan's notion of critical realism which has to do with Lonergan's transcendental method. How do we know as human knowers? And apply that to what we're doing when we read scripture. And so that's the project uh, that he took up in his life. And I think it manifested in a lot of journal articles that have been compiled into a book. And then towards the end of his life, he published the book Reality and Illusion in New Testament Scholarship. So some of this is a bit, uh, you know, Ben Meyer is no longer with us. I don't know which year he died. Some of it is a little bit older scholarship, but as you already alluded to, it's still with us today, maybe, in the work of N.T. Wright. Mm -hmm. People question how well N.T. Wright has understood Meyer and how well N.T. Wright understands Lonergan. So there's always this trouble with uh, the critiques because often what will happen is somebody will want to critique N.T. Wright and just assume that the problem lies with Meyer Mm -hmm. and Lonergan, but they never actually bother to read uh, Lonergan and Meyer. Let's say quickly then, what we're doing when we're talking about critical realism and the the tension that is felt. A Lonerganian understanding, as I have understood it, that N.T. Wright has often been accused of kind of folding everything into history so that God himself and the revelation that we have in Christ does not become the primary object. And I think object is the right word, but that takes some that takes some explanation. But anyway, just to throw that out there as a little tidbit, and I think what you're going to describe, in fact, is a fuller understanding than what we often might get in right. Well, I will say just from the outset, so critical realism, what we're doing it, it is more of the question of how do we approach human understanding more so, and it would be rather that human understanding produces these theories, like take Wright's ideas. He's always working with covenantal nomism. He works with a version of salvation history. He works with, uh, you're, you may be more knowledgeable actually to label some of his thought in terms of theories. This is almost in a way to say, take a step back and how do we arrive at such theories, and is the way that we came to know these theories that are generated by human thought, is that something that's genuine, is it valid, or are there flaws even at that level? And so that's Meyer and Lonergan's project, because they, Lonergan especially, he just looks at the history of you know, human thought, especially post-Kantianism. Uh, he thinks Kant got this wrong, and that allowed for a lot of other missteps, you could say, that have privileged what they will call picture thinking over true uh, understanding. So this is the issue with empiricalism, in a sense, that the empiricist imagines that 
meaning is already constructed in the data. And Lonergan's going to say that's not so. And of course, the idealist just reacts against this, but they're still imagining knowing in terms of picture thinking. But the idealist will react against this strongly and say, well, that's actually not the case, but we're not for sure what we can know if we can know anything at all. And so you have these two tensions, and this is where Lonergan's trying to chart a way forward. And Meyer picks up this way of knowing, this idea of transcendental method when it comes to knowledge. And he's going to apply that to New Testament studies because you can see in various ways the same issues, uh, whether we're talking about the quests for the historical Jesus, if we're talking about historical criticism uh, more broadly. We talked about in our last podcast, you know, this idea of a postmodern way of reading the cultural studies approach. Uh, what would be the limitations of that? That's really where Meyer and Lonergan are working. So when N.T. Wright goes beyond the scope of that project, I would just attribute those ideas to himself and would say they're not actually necessary Mm -hmm. uh, from a critical realist standpoint. Let's lay out then where the holes between which we're walking, and that is that maybe in a Kantian understanding there is the idea that there is always in some way the object of our understanding is going to elude us in the noumena. And so there is kind of a suspension, but there is still always the subject-object kind of pursuit of knowing, kind of a dualism. And is it correct to say this is what Lonergan and Meyer are getting beyond? Yes. Yeah, so Lonergan's the one that is critiquing this head-on. And he says, you know, this has been a problem for uh, the history of philosophy throughout. Uh, Something that you yourself, I remember, would critique, you know, it's this idea of privileging the visual Mm -hmm. so that we have most of our metaphors for knowing have to do with seeing. So that Lonergan will just say, we imagine that knowing is like taking a look. And when you start taking that apart or uh, unpacking that, what the criticism is really aimed at is this idea that for some we imagine that meaning itself is already constructed somewhere out there and that uh, the observer comes to knowledge in sort of a passive way just by taking a look. And he'll say, well, the idealist at least understands that you have to make a judgment about whatever is out there. But the problem is, and that would be reflective understanding, the problem is it still is working within this paradigm in which knowing is like taking a look. And so critical realism is a way out of that. Uh, It's a new way forward where knowing is not like taking a look, but actually knowing is uh, the, you know, the Lonarganians would use the phrase insight into phantasm. That is to say that we do pay attention to what is out there. We pay attention to data in another uh, way of speaking, but we don't imagine meaning to already be constructed in the data but rather meaning is arrived at through a process of imminent deliberation. You know, we ask questions and um, we have to then perhaps ask further questions until all the conditions for us being able to say what something is are fulfilled. And when we grasp that unconditioned uh, or virtually, you know, oftentimes it's just a virtually unconditioned theory. uh, So we could say this is true then when we say this is true, we're making an act of judgment. And the act of judgment is not just icing on the cake, but is actually a part of knowing itself, such that all of our knowledge entails who we are. We have something at stake when we say something is true or something is false. Uh, And so then this is a way of uh, talking about knowledge in, you know, the Lonarganian term is conversion, that we have intellectual conversions because it's not just that we would know something objectively is out there. But he's not going to drop this language of objectivity because he thinks that we need objectivity in the sense that whenever we know something is true, uh, we can share that knowledge with somebody else and they can also grasp it as being true. Uh, so that it's not the case that we have retreated into a relativism where true is only what's true for me, but rather we actually can share some of these bits of insight that we've passed judgment on, theories, concepts, as being true, and we can share those with others. So that would entail some objectivity, but of course we only come to this objectivity through authentic subjectivity, which is to say that we recognize 
uh, knowing is a process and that we ourselves as the knower are involved in that process. Let me just simplify it and see if I got it right. And that is that on the one hand, there is the acknowledgement of a reality out there. There's the realism, but the realism to say that it's out there may already be a mistaken understanding. So that there is the the sense of a reality, but it's not a a reality that we just uh, passively receive. That it, in other words, it's kind of the Einsteinian revolution all over again, in that we're counting the observer into what is being observed. Mm -hmm. But it's not simply relativity in which one imagines that even if there is a reality, you can't get it, and it doesn't impinge upon uh, what is known. And so there is this dynamic process. Have I I described it right? That's right. This is, yes, very well. So um, the way it's described is, you know, it's a critique of a naive realism, and it's not a subtraction. We're not taking away anything from idealism, but we're actually adding some qualifications to idealist thought. And so this is a, a new way forward, so to speak. And so then Meyer will take this and apply it to the New Testament and uh, biblical studies. And that, I think, directly relates to what we were talking about last time. Because if we were to think about, uh, and these are just further illustrations, if we were to think about naive realism in the place of New Testament studies or biblical studies generally, what that takes the shape of is what is now, I think, predominant the way evangelicals and fundamentalists predominantly read. And that is that when they approach the Bible, they imagine that what the Bible says is what they mean when they interpret Scripture, and that there is, you know, almost a one-to-one, how would you say it, you know, that like they univocally speak uh, what the, bio, the meaning of the Bible as they interpret. And of course, there's all sorts of things that are being conflated, whether that's American politics or, uh, you know, there's a political agenda, there are... Uh, sociological agendas going on there. There's the agenda of what it looks like to be a right-wing conservative Christian in the United States. So there's this nationalist agenda. All of this is being folded into what they're imagining the Bible means. It's because of this naive realism, this way of thinking that uh, their, their constraints upon themselves or who they are as a knower isn't actually involved in what the Bible says. Uh, so that's, you know, this is a huge problem for us today uh, in sort of an odd way. You would think that after a hundred years of postmodern thought, we wouldn't still be doing that. But even as we sit here, I think this is actually the stream that's catching wind or gaining influence and power. So we'll have to see what happens with that. He'd say then, the other side of that, though, is, and Meyer calls it a Nietzschean view. You know, this is your postmodern way of reading. And it, of course, imagines that meaning is purely a projection onto the text. So this would be, as we were talking last time, sort of your cultural studies readings, which I think in a lot of ways are much better theology than just doing theology with the historical criticism in the Bible. Because we have other concerns. We have concerns about... Uh, are we promoting peace and justice in the world? But perhaps first we need to figure out what the text is uh, trying to say to us. But a cultural studies critic uh, would think that the meaning intended by the text, by an author, you know, we're talking about the Bible maybe to claim one author is sometimes hard, especially if you're talking about the Old Testament. But it doesn't, the final form of the text anyway, does it intend meaning? A lot of postmodern critics, cultural studies critics, reader reception uh, critics would say, well, you could never know anyway uh, because the meaning is purely projected. And so Myers says, well, both of these are untenable for various reasons, unsatisfactory. So how could a critical realist approach to the scriptures help us chart a way forward? And in some sense, it agrees with the naive realist. Well, there is something to the text. The text does mean something. But with this Nietzschean or these postmodern views, it says, well, of course, the knower, the interpreter is very much involved. Uh, So how do we chart a way forward that includes then, and this is very important, uh, judgment? That it's not mere interpretations aren't just concepts that, you know, get judged later, but 
when we put a concept forward, we're already making a judgment. We're saying this is so, and that has to do with ourselves as an interpreter expounding what the words of Scripture are. Of course, there's this further consideration because we're talking about the Bible that we all think according to faith, that the Bible is the word of God. And so Meyer would say, well, that's a question for doctrines. That's a question for foundations. Why do we just come to this by faith and say, this is the word of God and we're going to interpret it accordingly? So Meyer, and this is a kind of a criticism that has been made of right. Are we then just setting up our epistemology and presuming that in our reading of scripture or in our encounter with God, that the same epistemology is going to hold. Well, a way of saying this would be that there's only one way of human knowing. So if we're thinking from the perspective of the human knower, the cognitional process, regardless of how you might describe it, and perhaps there are better ways of describing it than what Lonergan has done or what Meyer has done, but the cognitional process of a human being is this inquiry into questions, uh, insight into phantasm, ending in reflective understanding and judgment. And Lonergan just says, this is, this is true of how human beings come to know. Mm-hmm. And it's not, and you know, people don't like this because he's going to say it's not actually culturally conditioned. However, human beings are all culturally conditioned. We all know from a point of view. We all know in time and space. We all know from a perspective, you know, so he's going to accept all those other things. And he thinks, you know, there's the reality of sin uh, would be that we are biased in multiple ways to actually coming to understanding and being able to reflect on uh, the answers to the questions that we have grasped. And so sin plays a role as well. But he thinks the structure is basically the same. And the easiest way to uh, talk about that structure is just to say that when you ask a question or uh, when we read a text, we expect or we are now in search of an answer to our question. Uh, when we come to read a text, we, we do so with the expectation that we're going to have or gain understanding from reading this text and that that understanding in some way comes from the text itself. Or uh, when we enter into a relationship with another human being, and we begin to ask questions to get to know them, just by the very nature of asking our questions, we assume that there may be intelligible answers uh, to these questions that are going to allow us to flourish in a relationship with this other person. Let, let me bookmark something that we can come back to, or that we're both aware of. The role of sin and, and, of course, the problems that that will raise in our various understandings of it. But mm-hmm. in other words, in a Lonerganian understanding, we're clearly not dealing with a reform notion of total depravity. But, okay, well, what, what is the, is it simply bias or what, what do we mean by sin? One view of sin would be the, a kind of uh, total depravity. Let's step back from that that we allow for human agency to in some way still be at work. And, I, and that's kind of my own position. In other words, even though we might talk about being deceived. Yeah, but that deception is not one that is apart from the human agent's participation in that deception so that uh, we are actively deceived by ourselves. It's not like there is a, a kind of total darkness without an explanation. But nonetheless, I'm wondering then, in, a, in Lonergan, is sin simply bias? What is that? Is it that with a application of a proper insight that we naturally bypass sin, or do we need, in fact, a breaking in of Christ to overcome sin? Well, I, I think you actually you betray too much in the way you set up the question. Um, for Lonergan, <laughs> bias is not ever simply bias. Uh, because this is a huge problem. But he's working in the metaphor that what Christ is doing, in a sense, is bringing us to know God. And you have to always remember, this isn't in the sense that, oh, uh, we've taken a look. So it's not even along those perhaps truncated versions of Western theology that would place the beatific vision as uh, the utmost, saying, no, you really know God. You become a friend of God. Uh, this is a major deal. This is what salvation is. And I think that's basically what how salvation is described 
uh, in both you know East and West in the early church before we get into different theories in the Middle Ages and then the Reformation and on. So I think that's okay. So what, how would bias work against us, or why is this such a big deal? Well, in some way, insight, what it means to grasp the virtually unconditioned, which is to say to have an insight, to be able to form a concept or a theory, and then reflect on that and pass judgment, always involves us so wholly and thoroughly that a failure to do that means a failure to be fully human. It means a failure to be able to relate to other human beings well. It means a failure to be able to grow and flourish uh, in God's grace. And so bias is the obstacle, but it's not an obstacle, uh, as you say, you know, this isn't an obstacle that we're not participants in, we very much are. So he lays out different kinds of bias. There's uh, individual bias, which would look at the what the uh, individual perceives to be their good and to choose goods that uh, are to the detriment of others. So you can already see, well, this is why relationships break down. This is also why I would say, you know, the theological relationship breaks down between uh, the human subject and uh, God, the creator and redeemer. Whenever we decide what is good for us and we place that over and above uh, the goods that God has set as our natural end, which is, uh, I mean, our supernatural end, I guess you could say, is the, the fulfilling of our being is to be friends with God. When we would set goods up that obstruct that, uh, that's going to be highly problematic. And we, we think of this as this is what sin is, right? This is turning from God. Or, so that's individual bias. But of course, groups can do this. So you have group bias. And this is when communities will privilege what they perceive darkly or dimly to be their good over and above the goods for others. So think of things like xenophobia or racism, nationalism, all of these are group bias, but this is grave and uh, destructive sin that we become very complicit in. And in you know Lonergan's way of thinking, if having insights, if having insights mean is a part of who we are as we grow into, you know, fully human people in relationship with God, uh, if you fail to have insights, what does that mean? Well, that would be, uh, in one sense, to go the other way. So that's to, if we we're going to use biblical language, you know, that's to deface the image of God in ourselves and in others. So that's a, a pretty big deal. And he thinks, you know, of course, communities can do this. Then there is also um, general bias and uh, dramatic bias. I say the words escaping me. Dramatic bias has to do with the way we function psychologically. That we're, we oppress things. Uh, we oppress ourselves in some ways, and this uh, keeps us from flourishing as human beings, as God would have us to be. General bias is whenever we would take shortcuts. This is one's very interesting because, in some ways, it's to say that people are capable of refusing to have insights. So, um, and again, you know, insight's never just a theory in the sense of uh, picture knowing, but insight involves us as people. It involves who we are as uh, communities, and we can refuse those ways forward mm -hmm. that would allow us to flourish, if we think theologically, as the church. You could think of this in terms of, you know, nonviolence and the church as the peaceable kingdom. We could refuse those insights which would lead us to do good rather than evil to people for various reasons. And this is a sort of general bias that is already, as you might imagine, coupled with individual or group bias. So bias in this sense is crippling. And the reason he uses a word that's not just sin is because there's so much baggage already associated with the word sin. So as soon as you say sin, everybody thinks they know what you're talking about. And in some ways, I think he's saying, well, it's far worse than what some of you think. And perhaps to Reformed theologians, you would be saying, well, it may be far worse than you think, but you're wrongheaded in uh, the way you think it works. You know, So we, we're not going to use that word. Uh, mm -hmm. And he uses bias instead to explain this. But I think it's you know right. just as grave as uh, any other definition of sin. Let me describe then an understanding that there, there's a kind of tension with what you're saying. And I, I presume that in Scripture, that as human subjects, that we're alienated. Mm -hmm. 
And that alienation is not simply an alienation from God and the world, but it actually has to do with human subjectivity. The way that Paul describes this, or the way that it might be described in a psychoanalytic understanding, is that, in fact, our subjectivity is a failed subjectivity. That we would make ourselves an object, as in our own ego, you know, that, that actually we're taking a look at ourselves. Exactly, yes, exactly. And so the, the question is, you know, I, I, that in Scripture, that to refound human subjectivity is the occurrence that seemingly can only occur in Christ, that we escape that objectification or that subject-object mode uh, only in Christ. In other words, our failure, it's certainly epistemological. It's not simply that, but it, it's in, inclusive then of a human epistemological failure, so that when we talk about salvation, we're actually also including uh, epistemological, uh, a knowing, uh, a salvation that we know God, we know ourselves, and we're enabled to know the world in a new way. Yeah, so I've got uh, two thoughts, because I, I think uh, this is good, and w what Christian would uh, deny the fact that Christ is the full and final revelation of God? Like, this is how we come to God, is through Christ, right? This is um, pretty standard, it's just, what do we do with this? So we could think about it several ways. What do we think is going on when Christ, say, in the Gospel, says to Simon Peter, who do you say that I am? How is Peter going to achieve this answer? Well, of course, what does Jesus say himself? He says, well, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but the Spirit of God has revealed this to you. Mm. The way that Kierkegaard might say this, you know, he raises the question, can you learn the truth? And his point is precisely what you're making here. Yes. Yeah. Oh, the way that uh, this truth isn't one that you learn in that way. Yeah. So I, I think this is what we're with what we're saying with Lonergan isn't so much that our our human knowledge erects a ladder that allows you to overcome the limitations of being a fully human knower and to know the divine. That's not the claim. But that's also, mis I think sometimes this is what gets mistaken for the claim. The claim is when Peter says, you know, you're the son of the living God, how does he make sense of that? What's going on there? This knowledge has been revealed to him in the sense that uh, he hasn't looked at any data that would have been present to him, uh, you could say, naturally. This isn't like he did an empirical bit of research to figure out who Jesus is. We can come back to this in the historical Jesus uh, conversation, really. But what is happening for Peter to be able to hear a question, formulate an answer, and then isn't it the case that he makes a judgment that this is true when he says it? You are the Son of God. Uh, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. When Peter issues this great confession, has he not made a judgment that has in some way entailed his very being and, and the, you know, the judgment that he's issued? He said this is a statement of fact, and facts are still important. Uh, I think we just have to be able to say that facts aren't ever necessary. You know, it's not like we're arriving at necessary facts through this transcendental method. Rather, we're saying this is a fact that is, could be shared universally. It could be meaningful for all people. And this is what Peter has said. So I think, you know, from a Lonerganian perspective, we're quite happy to say that the data that you're attending to uh, doesn't necessarily have to be data in the sense that the empiricist is always going to treat it as data out there. Even uh, the idealist who might say, well, that data out there can't be trusted. Uh, that's that's not necessarily, we're not claiming that this is the structure of human knowing, but rather that something is going to be made present to us that we have to pay attention to, and that if we pay attention to it, and if we're uh, intelligent about it, if we're able to formulate it into something that makes sense, uh, a statement, a concept, a hypothesis, and if we're reasonable enough to realize when it's virtually unconditioned, we could issue this as a statement of fact that we might believe in or we might assent to. That's what's happening here, and that's what uh, Lonergan is trying to observe in the fully human knower. So it's not as if we're constructing a way of knowledge that's going to overcome 
being human or the need for revelation. But it's just what is the human being doing when they assent to, say, a statement of faith or a doctrine or something that must be revealed to us? That's what's happening in uh, the transcendental method. I guess that, that, you know, there's two problems in being human. One, we're finite, and that's not sin. There's no, no, that's not a sinful thing to be mm-hmm. finite. But then it seems that also within Scripture to say that we're human, that, that in one way or another, I don't believe in original sin the way that it's presented in an Augustinian yeah. or in a Calvinist understanding, but nonetheless, there is the understanding that human cultures are fallen and that part of that that failure of humanity is inclusive of all of us. And so there is the twofold problem in being human. Certainly there's finitude, and we're never going to overcome, I, I guess, that we are made for knowing God, but God's making himself known to us. Is that a different order of knowing? One would think that God as the object of knowing also then changes up the subject of, of in, in the sense that subject and object are caught up in a different epistemology. That is, that now the parameters of this knowing are established in Christ. That here is God. I'm not for sure exactly what that would mean for several reasons. One, that even, so I understand there's a lot of nuance in saying God is the object. But I think we at least have to always be mindful that God is not a discrete thing to be known, as other things are to be known. And I'm not for sure why we would assume that as human knowers, uh, the way that we come to know would have to be changed up when we are in fact created to know God. So that I, I fully would get the point that sin is such a serious problem, that it's an encumbrance to our coming to know God fully, but it's also an encumbrance to us even being fully human knowers. Uh, but I don't know why we would assume that God hasn't created us for our with our final theological supernatural end in view. So that in a Lonerganian understanding and what Ben Meyer is doing, and I assume what N.T. Wright is doing, is to say that human knowing is always on the same continuum, whether it's knowing God or other forms of knowing? Uh, I'm not for sure uh, when you say it's on the same continuum. He's saying that there is an imminent, so within the human person, there is an imminent way of knowing that is present and is immutable. But to say that doesn't really say, it's not a very strong claim, really. It's just to say that the way human knowing operates is that we ask questions, we pay attention to things, we ask questions about things, we um, then have to, we form, say, concepts or something like that, and then we uh, we construe the question in a way that's meaningful, and then we make a judgment. But you realize that could be true, false, and you know it could be. Uh, we could, in Ben Meyer's words, we might not measure up to what we're trying to interpret or know, and so uh, it just may be unattainable to us. So it's not a very strong claim other than just to say this is what humans do when they know. The question about revelation really is another question because to say that humans know in this way, we know worldly things in this way, doesn't mean that by knowing worldly things you're all of a sudden going to know God. Our human knowing in this sense isn't a project of, uh, we're not manufacturing ways of knowing that make our consciousness more or less. Uh, We don't become more conscious of God as we become better knowers or something like that. It's more in the sense that as human knowers, we're able to uh, produce theories that we judge as correct or false and that we can, as a community of humans, engage those theories then in the sense that they're objective because they can be shared, but they're always, uh, we only come to know and understand them subjectively. I hesitate to use the word, this is kind of like, I guess you were using object, God is an object, or God is data, revelation is data. I mean, it's not to say that that doesn't have to be fully given uh, from God. Yeah, the word object is problematic, and I think you, you'll find it used differently. I think it's a Bartian point that mm-hmm. there is the objectivity, that a kind of objective knowledge, 
And that's not what is meant in this. That, that yes. I think yeah. what he meant here and what the, the New Testament idea is, that, that with God a, as the one that we are knowing, it, it's inclusive of human subjectivity. So you could almost take the Kierkegaardian point and put it right there in with the Bartian point, that truth is subjectivity. I think that what uh, Kierkegaard meant by that was not what is often pictured, that, oh, it's private or it's uh, completely relative. I think what he's doing is getting over the subject-object kind of Hegelian dialectic. Yes. And yeah. to say that with God as the object, and object here meaning, oh, we have a new subject also. So this this knowing constitutes an alternative subjectivity. Yeah, so that's an interesting thought that I think we're very close on, maybe just articulating the same thing two different ways, which is to say, you know, authentic subjectivity means to become a, a, a means to embrace fully human knowing, which is something that we're off, you know, we're just not up to the task apart from. In some ways, I guess most, I would say sin encumbers fully human knowing. So oftentimes we're just not up to the task of being authentically subjective in that sense. And I hear that's, that's what you're saying. And of course, like, this is why Christ comes to us. This is the whole point of having revelation. This is what salvation is. It's what it consists of. I think, you know, most Christians would on some level agree that the goal of this or the end of this is to know God fully and be known by God. But that doesn't mean that we know God fully uh, in some way that isn't still as a human subject. You know, I, I wouldn't even call finitude a problem. I mean, finitude is, um, you know, it's just, it's the way we are. It's the way God has designed us to be. Let me, let me point out the tension within what I was saying. In other words, there, there's almost mm -hmm. an inherent contradiction, I think, in much apocalyptic uh, thought. The contradiction lies here, that this knowing that is given to us in God is one that, in, in a sense, it's not dependent in, a, in a, an apocalyptic theology as over and against right or others. I hope I'm not misrepresenting him, but the idea is that, well, we know God in context, in the context of history, or we know God in, the, in a situation. It's not that apocalyptic theologians are saying there's not a situation. It's saying that knowing God in Christ is determinative of the situation, so that we're going to reinterpret the history of Israel. We're going to reinterpret our own understanding. Okay, that's all well and good, that uh, here this, this knowing is its own kind of thing. But then, of course, the whole New Testament, if that were the case, and okay, we got that all up and running, then you would think this is to, to misconstrue this or to pervert this. In an apocalyptic understanding, it's almost there's not allowance made for what we all know to be the case, and that is that the most dangerous sort of thing is that which the New Testament is written over and against, and that is, oh, you've been given the truth in Christ, and the danger is you're going to pervert this truth. And so there's the tension, and I'm saying this is the tension in what I'm saying, or in, a, in an apocalyptic understanding. Mm -hmm. So the human agency yeah. uh, is clearly part of salvation, obviously, and that that agency and discipleship, you know, I guess that's part of what we're describing in a Lonerganian frame, is that even as it's not like oh we just this thing happens to us, and now we're just passively receivers of all that God has given to us in Christ. No, in fact, that the the human agency in discipleship that we're modeling this. In other words, there's still the possibility for a failure of human agency. Yes. I don't know that that's a contradiction. I mean, that's just reality. People can be apostate. I, I can understand the, the Calvinist temptation. Once you've posited total depravity and then unconditional election, then you have to have perseverance of the saints because failing in this would be an impossibility. I think that's a kind of machine, you know, that you just set up and running. 
And what we're trying to articulate is, no, this is inclusive of human agency mm -hmm. and how the two things come together. And I think we just have to acknowledge that there must be something like Lonergan is describing. We're still in the process of judging, of an understanding that is fully inclusive of human cognition. In a way, uh, I think you could describe that as deification or theosis, so that, you know, Lonergan's of the persuasion, uh, and this isn't from, sort of the discussion we've been having is centered around insight and maybe method and theology, but, you know, Lonergan is of the persuasion, and this comes from some of his earlier work on grace, that what it means to be saved, of course, is also a process, and it's a process of becoming fully human uh, in relation to God. Maybe that's repugnant to some Reformed theologies, but I think by and large, most people don't have a hard time saying, okay, you know, is that what Catholic theology is teaching? Not always, not all Catholic theology, but I think pretty much the Anglicans sort of think something like this is going on for the most part. Do, you know, are, do the Lutherans find a huge problem in this? I actually was just thinking in terms of you know, Bonhoeffer makes the little quip that's quite anti-Lutheran, I think, you know, is cheap grace just for it's, you know, forgiveness uttered as like a concept. Uh, so are we going to be satisfied with forgiveness of sins, but not forgiveness of the sinner? So I think most of us, I would hope, maybe I'm speaking out of turn, I would like most of us to think, rather, that what salvation entails is a being saved. It's being infused with God's grace. It's growing and coming to be, you know, a fully human person in the full stature of Jesus Christ, you know, this sort of thing. And that's the, the other tension that I'd point out in what I was saying. Mm -hmm. There is always the problem. Well, we know that, that people, of course, everywhere in the world, are going to have insights. That's not exclusive to any. It's not like, oh, you've got to be a, a Christian to have these insights. Uh, no, everybody that all over the world are going to have uh, peculiar insights. Mm -hmm. So there's no question in a sense. But, but at the same time, I'm saying that we also recognize there are degrees in which people are confounded or deluded. And I don't think Lonergan would... I, uh, what I know of him would in any way deny that. It's one thing to talk about delusion in the abstract, mm -hmm. but then you start naming the delusions, like capitalism. In some way, we have kind of, maybe not it's a, it's a disenchantment, maybe it's a, a misenchantment, uh, or even like Lacan will talk about a misrecognition. In other words, once you're caught up in the misrecognitions, mm -hmm that are thrust upon us in this world. And they're, you know, nationalism, capitalism, racism, various forms of sexism, that one can see that the, the delusion, in fact, is that the world is quite dark once you begin to paint it in the actual concrete problems that we're, that we're faced with to, to get beyond these things. Of course, in a Lacanian, or that the, they're going to say, well, you can never escape ideology because our world is constituted in ideology. The problem is profound. I would guess that to overcome it then does constitute, even in a Lonerganian understanding, he believes in conversion and ultimate conversion. That is, that there are conversions leading up to the conversion that takes place in Christ. Am I am I describing that correctly? Yeah, I mean, I think the the main point of conversion is that coming to know something isn't just like constructing objective theories, but it involves the human person, which is ultimately something I think we would want to say about coming to know God. You don't know God as you know some concept or theory, but coming to know God actually involves you as a, a person. That in some way that there is the experience, a refounding of human subjectivity, of a unity. In other words, it's not that we don't fall back into a kind of subject-object duality or that we are still, that alienation still yeah. plagues us to a degree, but it's no longer definitive. But of course, you know, I think it's funny, like this conversation, I think we're always talking about best-case scenarios in a sense, that we all know people, uh, ourselves at times, who often just kind of muddle through, struggle along, 
you know, in relation to God, but it's not as if uh, we ever just do this thing perfectly. I would hope, becoming a Christian, we would realize that we no longer want to live in a way where we're always thinking in subject-object duality. But that's probably the best case scenario that we would really achieve that. And in fact, we're more inconsistent. And of course, what you're saying is the grand confusion that we're all living through at this moment in time. Yes. <laughs> and, and save me from myself here in that it seems like that, you know, I wrote a blog a while back that if Christianity, as Christians were saying, oh, this is the height of the unfolding of the goodness of God in the gospel. And isn't it the case then, potentially, that the perversion of this thing is the unfolding of the most profound sort of evil? Now, I don't know that, that you can say that apart from a historical presentation of the case, or that the historical presentation of the case makes this inevitable. But what we're faced with is the reality that with the advent of Christianity, it seems like two things are simultaneously unfolding. That suddenly we're no longer living in a kind of uh, paganism, which had its limitations in both terms of evil and of good, that there was a kind of controlled understanding in both instances. But with the unleashing of Christianity, it's as if we have taken steps simultaneously further into the darkness and more profoundly into the light simultaneously. And isn't that what we're witnessing in our own time? That the most profound sort of evil that we're faced with, not just at this moment in American history, but I mean even in the, the 20th century, that it was Christianity gone bad that unleashed the worst sort of evils, mm -hmm. such as the Holocaust, such as, I would even include, you know, fascism mm -hmm. and, and forms of Marxism in that. Now, I'm, I'm happy to hear the, the counter to that. Well, I don't have a strong one. I mean, I think that's just a very provocative way of, you know, you could ask, uh, is the end of Christendom Nazism? Is the end of the Christian project in the United States uh, this version of ignorant, insane nationalism, <laughs> you know, uh, I think that you all, I, I like the way you put it in tension because I think you always, you know, we have to say both things perhaps like, yeah, that does seem to be the case, but we also recognize that's not because people were doing Christian or we ourselves even had achieved some sort of ideal Christianity. It's not that Christianity leads to this, of course, but, um, you know, misunderstandings of Christianity, our bias coupled with Christianity are, yeah, sure. Uh, that's That seems to be where we've ended. I would almost like someone to refute this because it sounds too dark. And of course, the refutation would go something like this. And that is, well, people are evil. And the, what you're saying is not unique to the advent of Christianity. You're just describing what people always do, that, you know, violence and, and nationalism. Mm -hmm. But my comeback to that would be, yes, but isn't it the case that the insight, and I'm happy to use that word, that we have in Christ, perverted. In other words, what Christ is doing He's, in a sense, giving us access to the levers of power that we can actually realize, oh, that we can actually change the world, that the world itself is subject to human constructs and human deconstruction. And so that this access to power, in fact, can, in a Kierkegaardian understanding, uh, unleash the demonic in a new sort of way. Uh, yeah, I I, mean, I think of things that you've said before, you know, before Christ, people tried to rule the world. After Christ, people have tried to change the world. And uh, the drive to change the world has been more destructive. Yeah, if you go back to, you know, I, I don't think it matters where you go, but in a, a good Eastern understanding, and I don't think it's any different in the West, but we recognize it clear in the East that there's never the sense that you can change up the rules of the game because karma or nature or the cosmic, you know, oh, you're just always working within 
the supposed karma that we're all working out. Uh, I think that's kind of the, the understanding that you're going to get in both East and West. What is unique with the advent of Christianity is that we recognize that was a, already a delusion to imagine that we're always living within this imminent frame. In other words, what it means, what religion means prior to Christianity and even after, is that there is a manipulation of the cosmos, but no one ever imagined that uh, there was such a thing as changing it up, or in fact, even the escape, you know, the various forms of uh, escape, they're not really an escape from uh, the cosmic order. It's just a playing out of that cosmic order. But what you're getting in, you know, the modern period in, in Marxism, maybe in fascism, in, in the forms of the nation-state nationalism is the recognition that we can manipulate human religion. And I'll call it religion, even though we've called it secularism. I think that secularism is, you know, it's just a manipulation of these kind of animate forces. But now we realize we can manufacture this animation. That's what capitalism is that it's, oh, the animate forces, it, it's one that we actually can unleash and control. And that has proven highly destructive. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think, um, and it's come home to roost here now, finally, right? So we're experiencing it uh, on a day-in, day-out personal basis. As you were joking, it's like we, uh, you know, how tragic would it be to die of coronavirus just before we're getting the vaccine? <laughs> but it's because why are we in the situation? Well, it's in the situation because we can't love each other enough uh, to take care. You know, we we hedge all of our bets on these sort of monumentous, uh, like a vaccine's going to work and save us all because we can't just love each other and take care of our neighbors. Yeah, because the economy, I mean, that's what we're talking about. Yes, yeah. Literally, we're, we're sacrificing human lives to mammon, that the economy has to survive. And, of course, that's always what we're doing, whether we're sacrificing people at the border, you know, that it's always a human sacrificial system that is more rampant than anything that was unleashed among the Aztecs or beyond anything else. Oh, we've stacked up more skulls in a year than they recently found. Uh, in, I think it was the Aztecs, they found this mountain of skull. Yeah, I saw the article. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.